0: Hey listeners, welcome back for the Misogynoir Murders season finale. There's so much to cover today, so get comfy and stay a while. First up, almost two weeks ago, I followed up with Raynell Marshall's mom. Now, if you don't know who Raynell is, I advise you to please go back and listen to episode 15 to hear about her story. So her mom, Arlita, told me that the lead detective of Raynell's case shared some really good news. He told her that there were numerous phone calls to the police station about Raynell's case. And here's the best part. There are new leads in the investigation. To say this makes me super happy is an understatement. In fact, what actually happened when I heard was that I started crying. Even as I say these words, I have tears in my eyes. It's humbling and amazing to know that so many people showed up and showed out with their action. You've proven just how instrumental public attention is when it comes to cases like Raynell's and all of the women I've talked about so far. Thank you for being part of the movement that gets Raynell and her family one step closer to justice. Because of your support, Raynell's case is no longer cold. So from the depths of my heart and soul, I thank you for your listens, for your shares, and your action. Thank you for all your support because it truly means so much. Today's episode features a story of Dana Monroe. She was an 18-year-old college volleyball player, and she was killed in cold blood Her 19th birthday is on January 31st, and the closeness of that day really had me in my feelings as I worked on this episode. She was just so young and had so many wonderful things ahead of her. The senselessness of her murder is so upsetting. Dana's was another life taken by the violence plaguing Inglewood, California. Dana's family held an event this weekend in her honor. You can go to her Instagram to check out all the pictures and tags. Her account is linked in the show notes. Because it's Dana's birthday, now's the perfect time to drum up new interest in her case. Like so many other homicides, Dana's remains unsolved. Needless to say, this is an important time for her family, and this episode should have come out on Friday. But... As fate would have it, I was unable to deliver because COVID struck my family and life got pretty hectic. I just want to apologize for the tardiness and thank Dana's dad, Darren, for his understanding and his patience. So with that, I give you Dana's story. Dana Monroe, that's Dana spelled D-A-I-N-A because her parents, that's Darren and Liz, wanted her name to be different from all the other Danas. And ironically, Dana with an I was more known as Gucci and less so as Dana. I mean, practically everyone called her Gucci. The nickname is all over her IG and was even on the bottoms of her shoes. It was a fitting moniker because Dana was such a strong volleyball player. She possessed all the pizzazz and flair the name would suggest and it suited her on the volleyball court. I had the opportunity to speak with Darren and he shared with me that Dana was the second to youngest child of the bunch with two brothers and two sisters. Dana and her siblings are part of a blended family between her mom and dad, who married years ago after Liz's first husband passed away. And while Darren is a proud and doting father to all his children, Dana was his roadie, his buddy, his partner, and his sidekick. As a family, they did many things together, but Dana and Darren were close and attended out-of-state matches together, practiced together, and did just about everything else a father and daughter would do together. They shared a bond that many other parents might envy. Born into a family of tall folks, Darren said when Dana was a baby, she was quote unquote, gigantic. In fact, when she was born, she was half a centimeter away from setting a new record. As she got older, well, Dana also grew taller and by the time she was in fifth grade she was already five feet eight inches tall. That's a whole two inches taller than me by the way. Of course the typical sport that comes to mind for tall kids is to play basketball but that wasn't an option for Dana so she was a cheerleader for a while instead and even though she was awesome at that placing high in cheerleading competitions, she and her parents wanted a different type of sport for her. Herein enters volleyball. Back when she was just ending her fifth grade year and towering over kids her age, Dana was at her brother's football practice with her dad when she had to go to the bathroom. So as she and her dad looked for the powder room, a volleyball bounced and rolled out of the gym and directly into Dana's path. When she and her dad took the ball back inside the gym, Darren met the head coach for the Culver City Volleyball Club. They got to chatting it up, and of course, Dana's height was noted. By the end of the conversation, an invitation to try out was extended, and the rest was history. Dana joined the club not long after, where she played club circuit matches. And after her time at Culver City, Dana joined the West Los Angeles volleyball team where she played for a while before she made one final jump to the Sunshine Volleyball Club before she entered college. From sixth grade through high school, Dana became incredibly well-known within the volleyball community because of her immense skill as a player. As a player, Couple that with her bubbly and friendly personality, and Dana, or should I say Gucci, was like a celebrity. Everyone who knew her loved her equally as a player and a person. When it came time for college, Dana had no shortage of interested schools vying for her to choose their campus to call home. In fact, there were 33 of them to be exact, but Dana faced some scholastic challenges in her K through 12 years that made choosing the best school for her a little tricky. You see, Dana had an IEP, or Individualized Education Plan, which, according to the Department of Education's website, is a program designed to help students, families, educators, and school administrators to improve educational results for students with disabilities. Dana and her parents decided that attending a community college would be the best option for her. A good community college would allow Dana to ease into college life without overwhelming her. She'd be able to strengthen her academic resume before transferring to either Oregon State University or Howard University, which by the way, I didn't even know they had a volleyball team. It was a strong and well thought out plan that checked all the right boxes. After considering many schools, Dana chose Monroe College in the Bronx borough of New York City, where she spent the summer of 2021 on campus. She hit the volleyball court with her new team before classes started in the winter. Dana set up base in New York until September 8th when she went home back to California for a couple of months. The plan was to go back to New York in November to start school. But Dana figured until then, she'd get a job at home and earn a little cash. Besides, she'd have extra time to hang with her family and friends before moving way across the country. It took Dana about a month to land a gig at Jersey Mike's in Culver City. It was the perfect job too. It offered flexible hours that worked well with her training schedule. And the best part was that her best friend and volleyball training partner, Sam, also worked at the sandwich shop. So she knew she'd have fun while she earned a little money. October 18th was the first day of Dana's first job. As she got ready for work, she told her dad that she was really excited about her first day. The two of them chatted for a bit and then Dana needed to finish getting ready, so she told Darren she'd call him later. Time got away from her though, and she wasn't able to give him a call before she started work. But Liz, Dana's mom, sent him a video she took of Dana walking through the doors of Jersey Mike's with purpose in her stride. Once Dana got to work, then she blew up Darren's phone, asking him all sorts of questions. She needed her social security number, help with the W-4 form, and so many other things she had no clue about. Darren laughed as he told me about this, and I could really tell how much he cherished the milestone memory. At about nine that night, Darren called Dana to ask how the rest of her day went, and she was just a ball of excitement. She told him how fun work was and that she just knew she was gonna love the job. But as much as she wanted to chat, she was out front on a double date with her sister Desiree and their dates, and she needed to go. But before they ended the call, Dana said, quote, "'Hey dad, I'll call you later "'because I wanna talk to you about something. "'I think I have a boyfriend,' end quote." Of course, Darren's interest was piqued, but Dana had to go. She promised to give him a call back this time, so they said their goodbyes and ended the call. The next call Darren received would not be from Dana. It would be about her. Just as Darren was winding down for the night, his phone rang. It was his son, Daniel, and Darren figured the call was about an escape room challenge he did earlier that day, or maybe their fantasy football league. So Darren let the call go to voicemail, and figured he'd just give him a call back in the morning. No big deal. But Daniel called again, and this time, Darren answered. Daniel told Darren that Dana had been shot across the street from their mom's house. Now, obviously this was shocking news and Darren couldn't believe what he'd just heard, but he left right away. He first made a stop at Liz's house to pick up Desiree because he thought maybe she was there at the house. But Liz called and told him that Desiree's already here at the hospital. So you should probably get here as soon as possible. So a few minutes later, Darren arrived at Centinella Hospital. His family told him that Dana, Desiree, and their dates were sitting in a car across the street from Liz's house, trying to decide what movie they were going to see. Dana's 6 foot 2 inch frame was seated behind the 6 foot 3 inch driver, who probably had the seat pushed back to accommodate his own long legs, so space was definitely in short supply. As the two couples discussed the movie options, a car whipped around the corner and someone was leaning out of it. The next thing anyone knew, they were being shot at. And as quickly as it began, it ended and the car raced around the next corner. It all happened so fast, but when it was over, they realized Dana had been shot. Everyone else was able to duck in time to take cover, but the limited space in the back seat may have contributed to Dana's exposure. The car was shot six to eight times, and three of those bullets went straight into Dana. Now, of course, the kids were in a panic and scared to the bone, but despite their fear, they had the presence of mind to know the best thing they could possibly do was head straight for Centinella Hospital, which was literally minutes from their location. In the amount of time it would have taken them to deal with dialing 911, which can be a super frustrating experience, they figured they could have just gone to the hospital. So that's exactly what they did. Dana was taken inside right away, but she was already unconscious and had stopped breathing. The medical staff knew that time was critical. So they began working on Dana immediately. Meanwhile, as the family gathered at the hospital, or attempted to, Darren noticed that security personnel were aggressive towards them, especially the males, which definitely stood out to him. He told me that security treated him and his sons specifically, quote-unquote, suspiciously, and that he wasn't sure what that was all about. He just assumed it was because of the local gang activity and shootings in the area. Now, what that had to do with him and his family, he doesn't know, but he figured that's what it was all about. So, let me give you a little background. Centinella Hospital is nestled in an Inglewood neighborhood where gun and gang violence is prevalent, and the hospital is no exception to this. In a strange coincidence, also on October 18th, but in 2012, Gilbert Tito Gutierrez was arrested for drug possession and taken to Centinella Hospital for medical treatment. According to his cousin, Gilbert told him that he'd been suffering from depression and that he had a lot of problems that stressed him out. While at the hospital, Gilbert attempted to reach for a deputy's gun, resulting in the officer firing one shot at Gilbert, killing him in the triage area of the emergency room so i said all that to say you know perhaps that was the perspective of hospital security you know maybe it's their reasoning for treating them on men so suspiciously i mean like there's a lot of gun violence in the area so it's possible security was just being cautious but here's the rub for me being black isn't a precursor to violence so Unless someone is displaying obvious behaviors that are problematic, then there's no need to treat people like criminals. Also, like many other hospitals in California, Centinella Hospital had been in the news recently because of the nurse protests. The long and short of it is, with the ever-changing COVID-19 situation and hundreds of nurses quitting, The nurses who stayed have been forced to work 12 hours straight without any breaks, oftentimes not even able to go to the bathroom. According to an article by Kevin Smith for the Daily News, a Sentinella Hospital nurse was quoted saying, ER nurses who have critical patients should only be taking care of two patients, but sometimes will have four, and that's against the law, end quote. So apparently, this was news to me, California is the only state that legally requires a specific ratio of nurses to patients in all hospital units. According to that article I mentioned, the state requires one emergency nurse per trauma patient and one ER nurse for every two critical care patients. So now that you've got some background on the hospital, you can somewhat imagine how precarious and stressful medical emergencies at the hospital these days can be. You got COVID restrictions and precautions, staffing issues, the usual systemic bullshit, and gang activity all influencing the general vibe at the hospital. Add to that the stress, fear, concern, and heartache of family and friends hoping and waiting for good news, and it's a recipe for conflict at best. Of course, the Monroes took this mistreatment and all of these things in stride because at the end of the day, they were there for Dana, period. But their personal experiences at the hospital did leave a bad taste in their mouths. By this time, nearly half an hour had passed and the family waited anxiously for an update about Dana when two doctors approached the family. Doctor number one was cool in demeanor and appeared to have just begun his shift, in Darren's opinion. Darren noted the doctor didn't appear to have just been performing life-saving measures on his daughter, but again, it was just his first impression. Now, doctor number two, was someone who'd actually heard of Dana because of volleyball, and she was way warmer towards the family. Sadly, the doctors did not have good news to deliver. They informed the Monroe's that when Dana arrived, she was unresponsive and was not breathing. And despite their best efforts to resuscitate her, she succumbed to her injuries and died. After delivering that devastating news, doctor number one made a quick exit leaving doctor number two to answer the questions and comfort the family. Of course, this was noticed, but at that point, it didn't even matter. The family had literally just heard the worst news ever, and that's where their focus was. As word about Dana's murder spread throughout the Inglewood, Culver City, and volleyball communities, people were stunned, angry, and hurt over the loss of such a beautiful human being. At a vigil held in Dana's honor, at least 250 people who knew and loved her came out to express their grief and show their support of Dana's legacy. Kids from Culver City High School, from where Dana graduated, paid their respects to Dana's family, everyone sharing a personal story about her with them. Darren told me that one of the many people who approached him about Dana was a boy who shared a class with her. He told Darren that even though he and Dana weren't friends per se, she greeted him with her beaming, beautiful smile every day and always asked how he was doing, genuinely concerned. The boy confessed that he'd been on the verge of suicide, but at least one person cared about him, and that kept him alive. And that person was Dana. There are so many, many of these stories and it was a really nice reminder for her family about the type of person Dana was and that she lived her life by putting her best foot forward, leading with thoughtfulness and her humanity. Those are things that no one could ever take away and everyone will go on to remember about Dana. Besides the loving personal memory shared about Dana, everyone was confused about her murder and couldn't imagine why anyone would want to hurt her the loss of dana reminded everyone how senseless and random many murders are and people wanted the animal or animals responsible for this horrible act of violence brought to justice the early days of the investigation didn't yield much but it did provide additional context about the other teens in the car with Dina when the shooting took place. At first, I thought maybe someone had been either in a gang or was affiliated with someone in a gang, and perhaps that's why the drive-by happened, but I was dead wrong. Darren told me that police questioned the other occupants in the car, including his other daughter, Desiree, and they confirmed what the family already knew, no one, including the boys, was not a gang or even loosely connected to or affiliated with a gang or any gang members. In fact, the boys are two athletes from Georgia living in Los Angeles while they attend school and they don't have any long-lasting ties with anyone. Now, I know a lot of people wanna make this something that it isn't because one, folks love a conspiracy and two, people want this case solved. But the reality is all the kids, including the boys, were victims of this horrific act. And frankly, Darren is exhausted by constantly having to defend the honor and integrity of these kids. He wants to make it clear that this was nothing more than being in the wrong place at the wrong time. After police established that none of the victims were related to the shooting, it kind of seems as though leads dried up from there. In fact, there hasn't been an update regarding the investigation into Dana's murder in quite some time. Just like many other family members of murdered loved ones, Darren and his family remain in the dark without so much as a check-in from investigators. Now, Darren does wonder if police have been able to obtain CCTV footage from the intersections at which the shooter's car turned onto and from, or if clips from the doorbell cameras on the block where Dana was shot are available. But even that hasn't been disclosed. There literally have been no updates about the investigation of Dana's murder, which, in a word, is frustrating. Additionally, After the initial news coverage, there also hasn't been so much as a press update about the investigation or even one mention of Dana's name in the news since October. Like always, the news cycle moved on from the murder and focused attention elsewhere. Meanwhile, Dana's family and community are left behind, and that really is unacceptable. So, Darren, being a man of purpose, attended the virtual Inglewood City Council meeting on December 14, 2021. He asked Inglewood's mayor, James Butts, if the $25,000 city-funded reward for information leading to an arrest was approved. The mayor informed him that, yes, the reward was approved, which was great news. But that wasn't all Darren wanted to know. He asked Mayor Butts why so much of the meeting that day centered on the SoFi Stadium, you know, the new home to the Los Angeles football teams, the Rams and the Chargers. And to Darren's point, yeah, there was a lot of talk about SoFi and the challenges it presented to the community. From mega insane parking issues to the horrible traffic, all the way to residential problems, SoFi's presence takes up a lot of resources all around. And the city council meeting was no different. So Darren asked about that and then asked whether Inglewood still had a gang unit because, as mentioned before, there's still a ton of gang violence in the wood. It's not unreasonable to ask how the city is trying to tighten that up. He also wanted to know what the city was doing about the 18 unsolved murders at the time that included Dana's. Well, as any typical politician, Mayor Butts was empathetic and sympathetic in his response, but at the end of the day, he didn't really address Darren's core questions. In my opinion, the statements were more like brush-offs, meant to subtly dismiss his concerns. The mayor basically said that Inglewood has a high solve rate for homicide cases and try as hard as they might, the police aren't always going to be at the right place at the right time to stop a violent attack and that even rich people aren't spared from horrible acts of violence. Mayor Butts followed this up with a reference to the recent murder of Jacqueline Avant, the wife of the legendary music exec. Clarence Avant, who was murdered in her Beverly Hills home during a home invasion. I can only guess that was the mayor's way of saying that crime touches all folks regardless of where they live. And while this totally sucked for Darren and his family, it happens and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with police resources. Here's the thing though, the man who murdered Mrs. Avant was captured right away while Dana's murderer is still unknown and still unaccountable. I thought the comparison to the Avant case was in very poor taste and really didn't address whether or not the city was allocating resources to reduce the violent crime. And I just love how he completely ignored the part about the SoFi stadium taking up most of the time on the agenda. So here's a bit of context about SoFi. Two urban girls... A local news source tapped into the pulse of the Inglewood community reported that on July 12, 2021, the Inglewood City Council approved $1.1 million to cover the costs of additional law enforcement services related to events at SoFi through July 31st. Yes, you heard that right. Over a million bucks for a frickin' stadium during a pandemic, no less. And just through the end of the month. And four months later, in November, two urban girls followed that up with a report informing the community that the city council again dipped into the city fund for an additional $331,155 for, wait for it, police radios in the 2021-22 budget. Now, Many Inglewood residents saw this increase in funding as another example of the city wasting more money on SoFi. So while I give the mayor points for putting some sympathy into his voice, I was not moved in any way by his responses. Citizens have the right to know that all the extra money the city charges them in taxes will actually be allocated into making Inglewood safer for the community. Now let's back up to the $25,000 reward for a minute because I know I just breezed right on by that. So when Darren told me about the reward, more than a week had already passed since the reward was approved. However, I was unable to find any announcement made to the general public that a substantial reward for information leading to an arrest was even on the table. I found not one flyer online or any mention of this at all, with the exception of the Inglewood City Council website. In fact, if Darren hadn't told me or it hadn't been mentioned in the City Council meeting, I doubt anyone would know about it. So again, we circle back to the perception that nothing is being done about this case. When I asked Darren if the police had even been in touch, he told me that detectives hadn't even called to tell him the reward was approved. This counts as yet another strike for law enforcement and its handling of investigations into crimes committed against Black women. I don't care. I don't care. I said what I said. So since the reward wasn't officially announced via press conference like we saw in Brianna Cooper's case, which, by the way, $250,000 was offered for information about who killed her, I am happy to say that there is, in fact, on the table for information leading to an arrest about Dana's murder. Anyone with information is asked to call the Inglewood Police Department. You can call the TIP hotline at 888-412-7463 or the Homicide Department directly at 310-412-5246. Don't worry, all that information is going to be in the show notes. And before anyone tries to get cute with me, please understand that I believe Brianna deserved for her killer to be found quickly and with whatever resources available. Also yes, I know, Hancock Park, the city in which she was killed, only put up $50,000 to find Brianna's killer, and the other $200,000 was from a private donation. Listen, I have no issue with those facts at all. And I'm happy the investigation for Brianna's murder is one step closer to being closed. One less killer on the streets serves the greater good of Los Angeles. So, my problem is that urgency and justice aren't equally doled out. When Darren asked if an increase of the reward money for Dana's case was a possibility, he was told the vote would have to go through the agenda process again. So... I guess folks gotta be rich, white, and or well-connected for larger rewards. I don't know, but I do know the city of Inglewood has a $14 million reserve that they have no trouble dipping into to further their gentrification efforts. But I guess it's a tall order when black teenage girls are gunned down before they're 20. So when you wonder why people scream black lives matter, this is but one reason why. Now, just to satisfy my own curiosity, I did a few basic Google searches to find postings about rewards offered for other murder investigations in Inglewood. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, but from what I saw, it seems to me that rewards offered by the city cap out at around the $50,000 mark. Although. Those are rare. In fact, I only found $50,000 rewards offered for male murder victims. The highest reward My Little Search yielded for female victims was $35,000. And that was the only one I could find. The victim was Crystal Crawford, a preschool teacher who was shot and killed way back in 2019. The average reward really looks to be about $25,000. But again, this is just from what I saw on Google. I'm hoping there's more data out there that I didn't see that'll provide a better look into this, but it definitely makes you wonder, or it should. Anyway, I mentioned before that the communication between investigators and the Monroe family has been lacking, but apparently it's been for good reason. A detective working on Dana's case told Darren that the department is concerned about information leaks. They don't want important information about the investigation going public because that could adversely impact the whole thing. It's a fair point for sure. We all know how quickly things spread online and while it can be helpful sometimes, it can also tank an investigation. However, as Darren told me, there really needs to be a happy medium of communication. Like I've said a hundred times before, just reach out to the family to let them know that their loved one has not been forgotten. I know that investigations are complex, winding, topsy-turvy events, and they rarely move in a straight line. It's hard to know what's up or down without devoting a ton of time and energy to every aspect of that investigation. I get all that. I really do. But at least give Darren and Liz a call and say, hey, it's been months I know, but I just want you to know we're still working on this case. Or they could say, there aren't any new leads, Or maybe there are new leads, but we can't divulge that information or something. The point is just keep in touch with folks. I know investigators are stretched thin and obviously resources aren't flowing into homicide, but a phone call or even an email would go a really long way to building trust with families like the Monroe's. Before I end this episode, I want to remind listeners to reach out to the Inglewood Police Department and inquire about Dana's case. It really is a heavy burden for the Monroes to constantly call while doing all the other activities they do to raise awareness about Dana's murder. Not to mention, they are still very much in the grief cycle. Please do what you can and call 310 412 5246 and ask for an update or if you happen to be someone listening who might know something please say something you can even email the captain of the detective bureau his email address is in the show notes along with everything else also last note i hit up the reporters who covered dana's murder for their news stations in october i let them know that an award was now on the table and it would be great if they could follow up. Only Leanne Suter for ABC7 Eyewitness News responded and said she'd let her bosses know to see if they could run an update. So I also linked her contact information in the show notes. Sounds to me like they might need a little encouragement. It would be totally awesome if a couple of people would also message her asking for an update about Dana's case, including the reward. Let's do for Dana what we did for Raynau. If even 10 people called, emailed, or messaged once a week even, that would help tremendously. Please, please, please be one of the 10. Let's do what we can to get justice for Dana. As always, thanks for listening. Remember, this is a season finale, and I'll be on break for the whole month of February. But don't fret, I'll be back on March 4th with a brand new episode. Until then, be safe and stay well. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Wrightout.